and welcome to the Geeky Medics podcast. I hope you're managing to stay safe in these rather odd times. My name is Josh Chambers and this podcast sort of selfishly gives me an excellent excuse to interview interesting doctors and healthcare professionals from a range of backgrounds, drilling down to why they chose the speciality they're in and what it's really like to do the job. In this episode, we're concentrating on psychiatry and I have a really interesting guest to talk about his career. I hope you enjoy. Today we're joined by Dr. Ahmed Hankir, not only a psychiatrist, but known as the Wounded Healer. Today we'll discuss lived experience in medicine, the career and the life of a psychiatrist, and much more. Hello everyone, hi, this is the Wounded Healer, also known as Dr. Ahmed Hankir. I am a man, um, I wear many hats. I'm an academic uh, clinical fellow in general adult psychiatry at King's College London. I'm a senior research fellow with the Center for Mental Health Research in association with the University of Cambridge. Um, I'm also a professor of academic psychiatry at the Carrick Institute for Graduate Studies, which is in uh, Cape Canaveral in in the U.S. I'm passionate. I'm passionate about uh, challenging mental health related stigma, breaking down the barriers to mental health care, and empowering and dignifying people with lived and living experience of mental health difficulties. So I I have been a uh, mental health patient myself, and I was fortunate, Um, I I recovered. And uh, since my recovery and discovery, uh, there's a a fire burning in my belly and thunder in my heart to debunk myths and to raise awareness of the importance of mental health and to increase interest in psychiatry as a career. Mm. So I'm delighted to join you, Josh, on this podcast for the Geeky Medics. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us. I, you you mentioned that the, the, the fire in the belly to, to fight stigma um, in mental health. I mean, not just obviously mental health in medical students, but there is a huge, huge stigma generally. And you talk a lot about in, in some of the, the lectures I've seen you sort of deliver online about the parity of esteem between physical and mental health. I mean, to what extent do you yeah. think we can uh, to connect those two? Um, you know, you see it quite often in the hospital, the, the two sort of conditions, mental health, physical health being separated. How do you think we can sort of yeah. move those? together Mm. Mm. so i think at the moment josh we have a disparity of esteem um and that can be at many different levels so that for example it could be at the at the level of uh, policy Mm. the allocation of resources for the provision of mental health services we don't get the same the the same kind of money um that uh, physical health receives for example cancer care sure yeah things like that so what we do is we lobby we contact our local mps um the british government has an all-party parliamentary group yeah on on mental health 
So be sure to inundate their inboxes with emails. <laughs> uh, actually, I'm reminded of a quote that I shared um, at the Cambridge Union Society uh, by Malcolm X. It's the hinge that squeaks that gets the grease. So make some noise and, uh, you know, shout it loud from the rooftops that we want uh, parity of esteem. Sure. And that's, that's at kind of at the level of policy. Even It's interesting even at the level of the individual. Mm. So many of us neglect our own mental health. So, for example, we might be more mindful. We'll take measures to, to protect them, to preserve them, to promote our physical health. Mm. Maybe we wouldn't do the same for our mental health. So that's like an example of a parity of esteem at the kind of the, the level of the individual. Mm. And then, as you said, in, in hospital settings, um, usually they can be kind of uh, separate, can't they? Kind of uh, mental health services and physical health yeah, services. Yeah. And uh, our colleagues in other specialties, they can, uh, they can bash um, our profession. Mm. They, uh, they can uh, denigrate uh, psychiatrists. And uh, there was a fascinating study actually published not too long ago um, about how this can deter medical students from mm. wanting to sure. pursue, pursue psychiatry as a career. So uh, the, the former president of the Royal College of Psychiatrists, Professor Sir Simon Wesley, said um, in, uh, in an article um, that this is not so, this is not so friendly banter. Mm. Because, mm. um, um, as I said, it's kind of it's, it's pushing uh, people away from psychiatry, which is the most rewarding, challenging, and thrilling medical specialty of the of them all. Yeah, yeah. We briefly mentioned uh, stigma. Do you, do you think that's improving in society? Do you think we're 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 improving our our awareness of mental health and stigma, or do you think there's still a long long way to go? Well, I think we've made progress, and uh, we know. Um, the, the stigma experts are at the IOPPN, the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology, and Neuroscience, and we have um, the, the Time to Change um, kind of program. Mm. And um, the IOPPN, they have evaluated the Time to Change anti-stigma program um, in England, uh, which has revealed that there have been some reductions. Um, and it's interesting because it's 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 dose dependent, and what and what that means is, let's say you have a group of people, and you expose them to um, kind of uh, increased or even more time to this anti-stigma program, mm. and you compare them to another group that didn't have so much exposure to the anti-stigma program, and the former will have uh, lower levels of stigma than the latter. So that's what I mean by dose dependent. Um, and so some progress has been made, you know, without a doubt. But, I mean, people continue to suffer in silence despite the availability of effective treatment. And we know that many of these anti-stigma programs, they have, they're uh, associated with immediate reductions in mental health-related stigma, but not in sustained reductions. Um, you know, so, I mean, it's, 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 it's work in progress. Um, and we know, uh, if you look at the literature, the most effective way to reduce mental health-related stigma in adults is when you make contact, when you make social contact with somebody who has lived a living experience. Mm, uh, and so experts by experience have the power to reduce mental health-related stigma and mm. to be operating at the vanguard of any anti-stigma campaign. So mm. yes, progress has been made, but there's still plenty more work to be done. Mm, mm. And actually, at, at, at medical school, we, we quite often had uh, 
sort of expert expert patients come in with those conditions to talk about the effect on their lives be it sort of alcohol yeah. and, and things like that and um and they are the things that stick with you um going forward you remember those patients don't you and 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 you do. break down Absolutely. break down those barriers yeah um mm. I wonder if we if we could go sort of back to the beginning about um, why you chose psychiatry as a career. You talked briefly, obviously, about your lived experience in in terms of mental mm. mental health. How how did that sort of inform your decision to to go into psychiatry? Did you sort of do medicine to do psychiatry, or or was it sort of the other way around? Mm -hmm. now, thank you for asking, Josh. Thank you for asking, Josh. So I mean, like the genesis, if you like. Um, of the wounded healer. So, mm. no, I, I certainly didn't go into medical school wanting to become a psychiatrist. And um, if you look at the, the literature, um, usually it's that kind of pre-medical school, medical school and post-medical school mm. levels when someone decides to choose psychiatry as a career. And um, the Royal College of Psychiatrists now are working very closely with, um, with, with sixth form colleges um, throughout the nation, mm. because we know uh, that's um, kind of like a, a, a fantastic opportunity to, to increase interest in psychiatry as a group. Mm. Personally, um, what inspired me? Well, I, so I pioneered the Wounded Healer, mm. and the Wounded Healer has been described as an innovative method of teaching that blends the performing arts with psychiatry, and the argument we make is how can you educate an audience if you can't engage them? Mm, yeah, and so I reenact scenes from films, and um, I think you mentioned, didn't you, Josh, that uh, I delivered this the wounded healer at the University of East Anglia multiple yeah. times. Uh, I'm very fond of uh, of Norwich, and I've delivered the wounded healer to um, seventy five thousand people in nineteen countries and five continents worldwide. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, in the wounded healer, uh, it contains my recovery journey, my story, if you like. And I discuss how, when I was a medical student, I'll never forget, in uh, 2000 and 2006, I was in my third year. I woke up one morning to discover that my hometown in Lebanon was bombed and that hundreds of people were killed overnight. So my nightmare turned into reality and my world turned upside down. And I would see harrowing pictures of corpses and, and, and dead bodies uh, strewn on the streets of uh, Lebanon. And I was really sensitized to the events that were unfolding. And I reacted. I reacted. I uh, developed a debilitating episode of psychological distress. I discovered how utterly beholden we are to the power and mercy of our minds. And um, I was devastated. However, Josh, I'll tell you, I'll tell you something. Uh, the symptoms of mental illness were certainly detrimental, but it was the stigma that was attached to the condition which was far worse. I was ostracized, I was dehumanized, mm. I was shunned, not only by society, but by people who I thought were my closest companions. And so I started to sink deeper and deeper into the darkness. Mm. Now, in extremis, I contemplated suicide. However, however, fortunately, I'm a practicing Muslim. And in Islam, suicide is forbidden. Mm. And so that was a protective factor for me. I mm. resisted the urge to act upon those thoughts. Mm. I gradually 
sought help from a psychiatrist and from uh, my imam in my local mosque. And um, I recovered. And it wasn't, it wasn't a surgeon who saved my life, Josh. It was a psychiatrist who helped to rescue me from the depths of my own despair. And so that lived experience um, is a factor that uh, inspired me to choose psychiatry as a career. I also uh, delivered a presentation. It was a poster presentation. This is back in 2019, I think, at the International Conference on Mental Health at Cambridge University. And um, Dr. Rashid Zaman is the director of that conference. He's an academic based at Cambridge University. And um, he... He truly is uh, inspirational. And so those, I would say, are the, the main uh, factors um, that influenced me to choose uh, a psychiatry as a career. And I have never looked back since, Josh. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah, absolutely does. I think it's really interesting what you say about that lived experience. Of course, in not just mental health, but in physical health as well. We all, of course, have lived experience of family members or ourselves having and conditions that we're treating patients for. To, to what extent yeah. do you think we should include lived experience in the in the way we treat patients? I think sometimes doctors have this sort of shield. They won't, you know, talk about them about themselves suffering from the things that they're obviously treating yeah. these patients. To what extent do you think that can improve uh, sort of the doctor-patient relationship? Okay, okay. So we have lived experience, Josh. We have living experience now it's interesting because um prince harry has been very honest and open about his mm. living experience of mental health difficulties and he says that his mental health is under constant management so without a doubt my lived experience has not only made me a better doctor it's made me a better human being mm. i've become more insightful i've become more empathic and i've become more driven now it can be challenging um, that kind of decision do we share or do we remain discreet mm. about our health problems, physical health problems, mental health problems? And there's, I think, it's, uh, many doctors, medical students are not sure if it is even permissible. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. Can we share? What does the General Medical Council have to say about that? The, the, the professional body that regulates our profession. Mm. And um, there was some fascinating uh, research conducted at the University of York um, into kind of the, the benefits, if you like, of sharing. Mm. And um, the, I, f I forgot his name, but I, I attended one of his talks and he said, you know, let there be no ambiguity. There's nothing to prevent you from sharing your lived or living experience. Um, now, I, I embrace my vulnerability. Um, when I'm on the stage, I'm honest and open uh, about my lived uh, experience. But that's in an educational mm. context. I have seldom, if ever, shared my lived experience in a clinical context. Mm. What, not because I have any reluctance to do so. Sure. But because when I'm uh, examining patients, um, it's more about them than it is about me. Sure, I do sure. Like you don't to want to make it about yourself. It's no, of, of course not. Yeah. Now there is there is a, a manual. Uh, this was public. This was um, 
the authors of the manual, uh, Patrick Corrigan in Chicago and Katrina Skior in the, at University College London. It's the, the honest, open and proud manual. Mm. And it gives you kind of guidance on if you should share or if you should kind of remain discreet. You know, when do you share? Who do you share to? How much do you share? What do you share? So I would highly recommend that uh, people uh, refer mm. to that manual, the honest, open and proud manual. And there was a really interesting article published just last month by Dr. Rebecca Lawrence, who's a consultant uh, psychiatrist in Edinburgh, and she has bipolar affective disorder. And she talks all about her living experience. I think she had electroconvulsive therapy as, as recent as a year ago. Highly recommend um, people read her consciousness-raising, soul-stirring, heart-moving, article, Rebecca Lawrence, is published in the Royal College of Psychiatrists, uh, no, the, the, the British Journal of Psychiatry Bulletin, I think. Mm. Um, and it's a dilemma. I think the title of her paper is, is you know, The Doctor's Dilemma. Do we share Absolutely. or do we remain discreet? Yeah. Um, so that could be like, a, could be, that could be like, a, you know, a, bl a blueprint or, or, or a roadmap. Yeah, yeah. Um, it could kind of help you navigate mm. through this quite kind of, um, yeah, I would say uncharted territory. Yeah, and it is a dilemma. Sometimes you think that re revealing those sort of things would allow a, a better relationship between a doctor and, uh, and a patient to allow some, some degree of empathy to come across. But as you say, it, it's difficult when you want to make it about them and, and not about yourself. And so it definitely is, is a dilemma. Uh, moving sort of slightly on to more about the career of a psychiatrist, what's an average sort of week like for you? Is, is it varied? So, the, I mean, I'm an academic clinical fellow. Yeah. Um, so that's part of the integrated academic training. So 25% of my time is protected for research. Mm. And I conduct research on mental health stigma, Muslim mental health, and global mental health. So I can decide to take that um, protected time one day per week or as a block, mm. three months per year. Um, at the moment, obviously, we have the, <clears throat> the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, it's all hands on deck, isn't mm. it? We're all kind of... Of course, yeah working on the front line, or so we should be. But with South London and Maudsley, before the outbreak, um, we had every Wednesday was uh, protected for teaching on, um, to prepare us for the uh, membership exams, mm -hmm. the, uh, the membership of the Royal College of Psychiatrists, so Part A, Part B, and the CASC, which is the clinical kind of component. And we're really fortunate at uh, Maudsley uh, because we have world leaders um, in psychiatry um, giving us talks, Professor Melania Bass, uh, Professor Sir Graham Thornycroft, for example, Professor Robin Murray. I mean, these are experts and we're very fortunate because we can, we can benefit from the vast amount of knowledge that they, that they have. Um, and there's also kind of what we call um, the journal club presentation and uh, the grand rounds as well so we do, that's every wednesday and it's really it helps to break up your week as well um monday and tuesday depends on your kind of clinical placement um let's say i was working at the alcohol and drug addiction service i would see patients um it's kind of like a walk-in center mm. uh we would um examine them uh, initiate them on opioid substitution therapy or it could be alcohol detox for example um then on a on a Wednesday afternoon, sorry, I should have added that we have supervision for psychotherapy. 
So you have the long case and the short case. Right. The short case is cognitive behavioral therapy and the long case is psychodynamic psychotherapy. And usually we would also have our own patient on a, on a Thursday morning. I would see my patient on a Thursday morning. Mm. Then on a Thursday afternoon, I would return to clinical work. And that would be the same on Friday as well. Mm. So that would be kind of like nine to five. Um, but there's kind of there's so much that you can do outside depending on depending on what you're what you want to achieve if you're ambitious or um if you want to have the work-life balance or um you know if you're a, if you're a man on a mission or um if yeah. you want to be an academic if you want to you know it's, that's the beauty of psychiatry you know there's it's so kind of wide-ranging you know you have people who are interested in biological psychiatry you have people like me who are more interested in kind of social psychiatry cultural psychiatry mm. um so yeah, there. It's just. It's really. It's really exciting. And what's the bit about the speciality you most enjoy? Oh, you can't. The the most enjoyable part is when you when you make, uh, contact when you when you make contact with a patient. Mm. Uh, when you, when, for example, a patient who might be depressed. Um, they might uh succumb to despair. They're feeling suicidal, and when you instill hope. In that patient, and that look in their eyes, uh, when they when they feel it, like that recovery can be a reality. Mm. There's no there's no better feeling than that. There's no mm. there's nothing more rewarding than that. Certainly for me, I mean, I, I'm 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 very passionate about public engagement and uh, public education and public entertainment. So I find that very rewarding. Also, when you know you put me on a platform mm. on a stage. And, um, you know, I give talks about mental health stigma, mental health literacy, mm. um, you know, uh, the mental health of people from black and ethnic minority backgrounds. Mm. Um, I'm really passionate about dis- disrupting disadvantage. Um, so that all of that, all of that is incredibly rewarding. And, and you can get mm. that in a career in psychiatry. And the college, are, I mean, the college, the Royal College of Psychiatry has been superb. The, res- the, the support that I received from them has been absolutely amazing. Mm. Mm. And sort of on the flip side, what what do you think the downsides of of the speciality are that you've found? I mean, that's an important question. Um, I think you need to be honest with yourself. Um, try to get as much exposure and experience in psychiatry as possible. Um, because obviously this is one of the biggest decisions that you'll ever make in your life, um, your career. I mean, if you look at the literature, they they talk about, you know, you need to have a tolerance for ambiguity. Um, and if you feel that you can't tolerate ambiguity, then you, you, you know, you might want to kind of reconsider which specialty you want to pursue. Um, I mean, it's, there are, there are challenges. There are, there are many challenges, you know, it's not like there's a, a quick fix, you know, it's not like, um, people will recover rapidly. Um, so if you're looking for, uh, immediate results. Uh, then you know, psychiatry might not be the, the the specialty for you. And I mean, also, do you have? I mean, are you are you, are you do you have the 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 emotional intelligence, the life experiences? Mm. Um, do you you know do you are you able to, um, in a sense, in a sense, I wouldn't. I mean, to when somebody confides in you about adverse childhood experiences, for example, when they were the victim of sexual abuse from uh, a relative, not many people are able to contain that or handle that. Yeah. Um, so I think it's having that emotional intelligence. Um, and uh, yeah, so the, I mean, these, these are some of the challenges, mm. but I mean, mm. 
like I said, I've never, I've never looked back. Yeah, Psychiatry yeah. is the most thrilling medical specialty out there. Mm-hmm. And actually, sort of on from the point you were making there, uh, it, it seemed to me when on my psych- psychiatry placement that actually, yeah, you, you were taking on a lot of what those patients were saying. Lots of those things that they're confiding in you that they've told no one else um like you say sexual abuse is a is a child for instance and those things you can you can be tempted to take on board and you could really struggle with i mean how how do you deal with with that in yourself how do you sort of protect yourself against that so in general the the, the college are not oblivious to this so we have what we call balance groups you know and then what we do is we get together every in your first year you get together every year and you discuss the case and it's a case that um, you may have taken home with you mm. because you try your best not to take the cases home with you, but we're only human after all. Yeah. And it might give you a sleepless night and you might get tearful, for example, that might shatter my masculine bravado, but you know, I've shed a tear or two. Yeah. Um, and I don't apologize for that. Um, I think if anything, it makes me more empathic, but I mean, so kind of developing resilience, mental health resilience, mm. uh, these kind of, uh, balance groups are um, incredibly helpful. But then if you're training, for example, in medical psychotherapy as a higher trainee, then um, part, of your, part of your training is that you need to have therapy yourself. Mm. I mean, because we're talking, about the, we're talking about the unconscious here. And there's so much happening at the unconscious. It's like an iceberg, isn't it? You know, mm. that part of the iceberg that is sub- submerged beneath the surface of the water. And it's far greater than the part of the iceberg that is actually above the water, which, which represents the conscious mind. So, mm. so much is happening in the unconscious minds of medics. Yeah. that we need to explore and that we can utilize psychodynamic psychotherapy for to try to kind of process these difficult emotions that we may that we might um, experience when, for example, we're taking history from a patient who has um, been the victim of sexual abuse, for example. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something, yeah, that, that we all have to deal with in medicine, not just psychiatrists, but sort of dealing with that yeah, seeing patients in vulnerable positions is is tricky. Um, do, would would you have anything that you you would recommend to to medical students and and new doctors for for dealing with these initially, dealing with these complicated and and sort of stressful situations with patients? Would you have any advice for them? My kind of immediate advice would be not to bottle it up, hmm. um, and um, don't feel for a moment that you're the only person who is maybe struggling. Um, or uh, finding it uh, difficult. We derive solace from shared experience. So um, I'd speak to your clinical supervisor. They, they usually offer pastoral support, mm-hmm. your educational supervisor. I mean, the, the Royal College of Psychiatrists have a psychiatric support service for psychiatrists at all grades. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, don't, don't, um, don't feel like you're alone. Um, you, you, it might, it might seem to you that you are isolated, but you're not. Mm. The social connectedness is necessary for resilience. So reach out to your peers, um, reach out to your seniors and, um, cliche though it may be, um, a healthy body is a healthy mind, go for a run, Mm. um, and do whatever you have to do, uh, to, um, develop mental health resilience. And that could be. Um, that could be art therapy, uh, you know, cinema therapy. I'm, I'm going to give an interview about cinema therapy in a few days from now. 
So yeah, don't don't suffer in silence. You know, effective treatment is available, and seeking help is a sign of strength, not a sign of weakness. I, I've been um, working in the emergency department in Norwich for the last couple of weeks, and and I've noticed a week or two after lockdown that there was there was so many mental health patients coming through the emergency department. Um, and it yep. made me realize, you know, how important family and friends and those sort of actual connections with people, not just over FaceTime and things, but those actual connections with people and how much people depend on that. And it was, yeah, very interesting uh, to 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 see the consequence of, of lockdown on people. Um, and sure. yeah, really, really tricky. I, I wondered if you because quite often um, on the wards or, or, or in hospital, you come across patients who do need a mental health referral um, and do need, um, obviously, initial assessment by yourself as a sort of the first clinician that sees them. Would you have any recommendations on on th- those sort of initial um, referrals and what sort of things that you would, as a psychiatrist being referred to, look out for? Well, I mean, if that's in a, if it's in a hospital setting, it's usually the kind of liaison psychiatry services. Mm. If that's during normal working hours, yeah, out of hours it will be the the on call team. Yeah, I think we we have to be uh, careful because we're doctors. Although we're psychiatrists, we're also doctors. So don't kind of um, dismiss the physical health. You might think that this patient, they might even say that this patient's medically fit for discharge, mm. but still have a look at the blood results, have a look at the ECG, um, because they make they make mistakes. Our colleagues. Um, our counterparts in A&E, for example, they, they, they do make errors. Um, and the, the, there's also something called diagnostic overshadowing, which is the misattribution of physical illness signs and symptoms to a concurrent mental disorder. So it might be that this patient didn't have the necessary investigations. Mm. So make sure that if this patient's come in and have chest pain and they haven't had any blood results or a trace of their heart, for whatever reason, challenge. Challenge that. Ask, say, why didn't you do these kind of baseline investigations and they might say oh it's because this patient has anxiety and chest pain is a somatic symptom of anxiety it is mm. but myocardial infarction also is, is, yeah, is yeah, not a yeah. differential diagnosis yeah. so um, this is what we call diagnostic overshadowing and we know that there's a kind of mortality gap uh, between people who have uh, a serious mental illness mm. and those who don't have a serious mental illness it's 20 years and what's contributing to that mortality gap is diagnostic overshadowing so the mm. first thing is have a look at um, you know make sure that there's that an organic cause of their uh, presentation has been ruled out mm. um, and then try to kind of uh, it's, it's, it's a time consuming process and, I'm, I'm, and my colleagues they inspire me all the time um, you have a look at the entries uh, from colleagues who were on call for example on the kind of, on, on your electronic records and you can see how thorough uh, they are and it's a really time consuming process trying to collate as much information you can about the patient as possible mm. before you actually you know make contact with them when you make contact with them I think um, Nonverbal communication is really important. The tone of your voice, the look in your eyes, um, you know, active listening, um, being empathic but not emotionally attached. All of these are skills that you that you develop um, uh, throughout your training. Um, so yeah, that. So when I get a, and obviously there, there's ne- there's next kin as well, mm. trying to get a collateral history. Um, so it's um, it's yeah, these these are all the things that you need to do when you're on call and when you receive a referral there's plenty more as well sort of final question what sort of tips would you have for, for medical students considering a career in psychiatry to expand uh expand their sort of uh knowledge base in the area or to, to get get a place on training programs and things like that what sort of advice would you give them at medical school to to help them in this regard 
you you get as much exposure and experience as possible, engage in introspection, identify what your strengths are, areas that require further development, you know, what are your um, you know, what 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 characteristics, you know, because you need to be empathic, right? You need to have that tolerance for ambiguity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, read, read about it. There's plenty of go to the Royal College of Psychiatry's website. There's plenty of information um available um at even pre-medical school level. Um and you can be like an associate as well. Um you have the medical school psychiatry societies uh, med, um psych socks mm-hmm. attend their events. The college uh the college is really keen to um, increase interest in psychiatry as a career. So there are kind of multiple uh, events and initiatives. For example, there's the, the, there are the summer schools. Um, I would go to conferences if you can as well, present a, a poster at a conference, because that's a, um, a fantastic way to network uh, with, with people. I mean, that's, as I said, one of the reasons why mm-hmm. I decided yeah. to choose psychiatry as a career. Um, be proactive, you know? Don't wait for opportunities to come to you. Um, uh, seize, seize, seize the, the the moment, the opportunities. Um, I know when I got started, when I was a medical student, um, I I was kind of giving uh, poster presentations to start off yeah. with at conferences. Yeah. Um, then I did an out of area special student component on uh, psychiatry mm-hmm. at Cambridge. I was a medical student at Manchester. Um, don't give up, you know. Um, it, it you know it it there there can it, it can be challenging it can be competitive, um, but if you work hard, and if your heart's in the right place, and if you have the the kind of the the, the, the communication skills, you have to be respectful mm-hmm. to to your colleagues, uh, to to your seniors, um, to patients especially, um, then then you can you can then you can um, specialize in psychiatry. Um, that, 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 we will welcome you. We will we will embrace you. And don't for a moment think that your lived experience is a is a disadvantage. On the contrary, we, I recently um, collaborated with the Royal College of Psychiatrists in their True Psychiatry campaign, and we released a statement saying that actually your lived experience is an asset that we embrace. Mm-hmm. Um, so don't feel for a moment uh, that you shouldn't uh, choose to specialize in psychiatry because you have lived experience. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, where, where can we hear more from you as the wounded healer? Are there specific places on, on YouTube and things that, that listeners can hear more from you? So um, one of my favorite uh, poets is Dylan Thomas. And a couple of lines from one of his poems, do not go gentle into that good night, but rage, rage against dying of the light. And I've, I've tweaked the words of that, of those lines. Do not go gentle into that good night, but tweet, tweet against the dying of the light. And I think that's how we connected, isn't it, Josh? Yeah. Yeah, so it yeah. um, you know, set up an account on Twitter because there are so many psychiatrists on yeah, Twitter and you can connect fantastic. with me on Twitter. I've got, I mean, I've been fortunate. I've received invitations to lecture in Orange County in California and Kuala Lumpur and Malaysia, all through the power wow. of Twitter. Yeah. Um, I've, I've got a website, um, Um But I've got an account, as I said, on Twitter, the Wounded Healer, Ahmed Hanker. Um, so follow me. Um, and then we can connect, send some messages, and I'll do my very best to, to respond. And um, yeah, plenty of papers on PubMed as well. If you want to read, read up about global mental health, mental health stigma, Muslim mental health, then just put my name on, on PubMed. You can just Google me as well um, and you should be able to find uh, further information. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It was really interesting to hear about sort of why you chose psychiatry as a career 
um, and, and all the best with everything with, with uh, coronavirus and, and things like that as well. We managed to get pretty much the way through the podcast without talking about COVID-19, which I think, <laughs> given the amount of news at the moment, is a good thing. Um, but yeah, no, all the best with everything. Likewise, Josh. No, thank you for having me. And uh, I wish you all the best too. Thank you again for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast and want to hear more from us, please consider subscribing to your podcast provider. You can also follow Geeky Medics on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. We'd love to hear from you with suggestions on who you'd like to hear from next. As ever, thank you to the producers of the podcast, Alice Appleton and Lewis Potter.